Welcome to a brand new episode of Front End Happy Hour. This is episode 35, and we are joined by Yuri Tulos, a staff engineer at AdRoll, and Josh London, a senior designer at Netflix. In this episode, we will be discussing style guides and shared components. Yuri and Josh, before we get started, you want to give us a brief introduction of who you are, what you do, and what your favorite happy hour beverage is. I'm Josh London. I'm a senior product designer at Netflix, and favorite happy hour beverage would actually have to be the Bundaberg ginger beer. Nice. Which Augustus might have to share one with you. <laughs> I was like, maybe Augustus should offer. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, would, you, would you like one? No, no, I've got Oh, you got some? Yeah. Okay, you can refill. This is diet, though. They, they ran out of the normal. You're, you're watching your diet? <laughs> no, they just ran out. So. Uh, like, All right, Yuri. All right, uh, I'm Yuri Tulos. Uh, I'm a staff UI engineer at AdRoll. I run the front end core team there. And uh, depending on the day, I guess I would have either an IPA or an old fashioned. Right on. And let's also go around the table and give introductions to today's panelists. Stacy, you want to start it off? Sure. Stacy London. I'm a front end dev at Atlassian. Uh, Jim Young, senior software engineer at Netflix. Mars Julian. I'm also a senior software engineer at Netflix. Um, Augustus Yoon, front-end engineer at Evernote. I'm glad we're breaking up the Netflix train here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Derek Scherer, senior software engineer at LinkedIn. And I'm Ryan Burgess. I'm a software engineering manager at, guess what, Netflix there. <laughs> I'd also like to mention that in a future episode, we'd like to do an AMA episode, which is Ask Me Anything, and we'll answer whatever questions that our listeners have. So to help us out, go visit frontendhappyhour.com slash AMA to leave us a message. We are excited to answer anything about coding, careers, personal questions that you may have for us. Leave us a message and we will try and answer it. In each episode of the Frontend Happy Hour podcast, we like to choose a keyword that if it's mentioned at all in the episode, we will all take a drink. What did we decide today's keyword is? Consistency. Consistency. So at any point in the episode, we say the word consistency, we will all take a drink. All right, well, let's get started with the questions. Start off with what is a reusable component and what is a style guide? How would someone define that? I guess reusable components and uh, I guess at a base level, even just a style guide is uh, trying to set a visual language for an application or a website. You can even use them for language and uh, even motion, things like that. So it's actually setting some consistency. Cheers. Cheers. For an entire application for whole teams to and whole companies to kind of follow so everyone's using the same language. Yeah, and when you say language, you're meaning actually specifically to the like verbiage and everything in the content. Uh, in, in one context, yeah, but then uh, the design language, I guess, oh, too, okay. of like visual language. Visual language, of, yeah. That makes of sense. Of what everything kind of looks like. Yeah, I would also like to add that reusable components, people usually talk about them in the context of JavaScript libraries, but I would also think about them more broadly, like any anything like a simple CSS class could be a reusable component because that it ends up being a visual component in the app that multiple teams might use. Yeah, even like the preprocessor languages, that's kind of how they've been structured to be built is so that you can split them up into smaller modules or components and reuse them. So right. that's a good so way to put JavaScript it. JavaScript is not necessary. It's not just JavaScript. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you could do it in any language. You could do it in like PHP, break, break right. up code. And yeah, well, that makes sense. I'd love to hear people's thoughts on the benefits for creating a style guide or using reusable components in your companies or even just in a larger project. I think one of the biggest ones is consistency. Oh, <laughs> cheers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you, especially if you're a company that makes multiple 
products. You want all those products to look like they are built by the same, they come from the same company, they come from the same place. And in order to do that, it's it can be pretty, I'd say almost impossible if you don't have something like a style guide or reusable components because you're gonna not have, you're gonna have disparate teams working on each product, doing their own thing, having their own deadlines. And if you don't have something structured to give them guidance, like I think it's it gets very difficult to keep consistency across products. Oh boy. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers again. On the flip side of that, so we, we use a, we have a pretty well-established design pattern at LinkedIn that has been through many iterations. But so anyway, the most recent one is, is, has been probably around for about a year and a half, two years. And I guess like the, the con to it is that, you know, when you're working on different products, you're sometimes limited in like what you can do. And like, you know, this product might have reasons for going this way and, and, you know, versus like the LinkedIn.com, you know, uh, feed might look different than the product that I work on, which is a LinkedIn learning app. But I think the good thing about that is it forces you to then think about the decisions that you're making and like almost justify or like think about things just like, okay, this is a little bit different. This is a little bit different use case, but you know, we're being inconsistent because of this reason versus if you don't have that, then you're just, you just, you're not necessarily thinking about that. Yeah. And I think it, there's just truths when you put enough smart people in a room and one is they're going to argue over tabs or spaces and two, everybody's going to have their opinion about like what looks good. And that's just the nature of you put enough good software engineers in a room. They're all going to want to make their own thing. And a style guy kind of forces you to say like, no, we've already argued about this and this is what we decided and this is where we're going to go. And that kind of solves the not built here problem that you just run into eventually in any large organization where we all want to make four versions of an input component or a button and we don't need to, even though your way might be slightly better, like we just don't need to. It's, we have better problems to solve. It saves time. You're not recreating the wheel every single time. Like you just said, Jem, you're creating one input that works, kind of rules them all. But at the same time, is if you did want to change it and you found a better way that works better across your site or application, you change that one component and it applies everywhere. And to me, that's huge. It's like, even if you want to change your button style every other week, well, at least you have one consistent one that just gets applied everywhere. That saves a lot of time than having to go back and forth trying to find where has this button been used? Oh, I have to update it here and I have to update it here. If you have one consistent location, that makes a big difference. And that's, I think one thing that kind of gets lost in the whole reusable component style guide conversation is for engineers or for designers or for you know teams working together in large companies, sometimes it feels like a lot of overhead. And you kind of have to remember that there was a point to designing a visual brand. I think it's really important for users to feel like they know your product well and they can identify it from other like from other products, not only so they can navigate it, but also so that it's kind of they can talk about it to their friends in a way that makes sense and it doesn't blend together with, you know, all of the other products that might be out there in the market. And, you know, it's it's job security for some of us, um, but a little bit of overhead I don't think hurt anyone, especially when you start to go beyond being an engineer and start to empathize with your users a bit more and really think about how they're using your application. I also think of it too as anytime that like we run into bugs, if you fix it, something's wrong with your input fields or whatever that component is that we're talking about, it gets fixed at once and then it applies everywhere. You're not trying to fish around finding it. And I think like looking to the design aspect, and I'm sure Josh, you can agree to this, is that you build better UX by just planning that out from a holistic view rather than just, oh, I need a button, I'm gonna throw it in here, I need an input, I'll just throw it in here. It's more thought out like across the board. Yeah, and it's it's thought of as a, like a design system then. So everything, you know, 
is cohesive and everything kind of plays off of one another. Um, and I guess to kind of go back to the like where the where it can kind of struggle is when like when they ha- do have a, you know designers have opposing views on things and like when you were mentioning like inputs we were like when the whole placeholder only inputs trend came around <laughs> uh, I saw a lot of you know design systems you know re- releasing that with like material design and things like that and but the accessibility on that is terrible and the usability on them are terrible because the the label disappears when you're when you're in the input so what it, what's kind of great about it is that you can change it globally, but some of the drawbacks is that you have to have those internal conversations kind of maybe more than once. Uh, and then, you know, fortunately I work with a lot of people who don't have big egos. And so we can actually like kind of leave our egos at the door and do what's best for the user. And then we'll actually roll back changes or we can actually, if someone wants to introduce something new, you just uh, add it to your, your library and then do a PR on it. and everyone can sit around and approve it and comment on it and things like that. But that does add overhead and um, additional time. To expand on what Ryan and Josh both said though, I think one of the, also one of the great things about working on uh, uh, stuff that's already been patternized is that you don't have to worry necessarily as much about things like uh, accessibility or browser support because in theory, that's already been tested, you know, by the person who built the component. So um, that's and even um, just what you were saying about accessibility applying like all over across the board, like you, you have that advantage, too. So like if there is an accessibility bug, like Ryan was saying, or, or um, you know, you can fix that in one place and then it is for free everywhere else. Yeah. And you can write unit tests around it, automation that constantly keeps checking these uh, components and. You know, if something does break, it can let you know before it ever gets into production. Because adding unit tests and writing automation, those are extra steps. But if you do it once, it's really consistent across the board and can catch things. To the to that point about overhead and like having you know a company dedicate money and resources to having a team focused on building like that style of guide and reusable components, I think it's often hard to justify sometimes to be like we need to bring in an accessibility expert to help build something for the team but if you have a like a full-time team that that's what they do is build these things it's maybe easier to have that conversation and be like yeah and we also need to bring someone on that has that expertise so that you know the system works for all products and is consistently accessible and and done right and i think that's that's kind of a nice benefit to it if your company's willing to do it they're probably even more willing to to bring on specialized skill sets yeah and that's actually so jenison who works at linkedin was also on a previous episode he works he works on the um, design system team, so like, or, or like part of the same group. So it's really easy for him to make changes that affect the entire organization and the entire product because he's, you know, at the kind of like at the foundation of everything. So we're all at fairly large companies. How would someone in a smaller company do that? Because you're not going to necessarily have a whole team dedicated to building a style guide. What's the best way to do that in a smaller team? Maybe it is just couple two designers and two engineers like I, I think that's still valuable to have a style guide and have uh, that written language that show how to create these components and share them but how do you do go about that if it's just a small team I think we should defer to Yuri for that answer um, a comp- Adderall is like a pretty big company but relative to a lot of the companies we work for the engineering team is actually quite small and in probably a year and a half two years they've done quite a lot with their reusable components and style guides and I think well you can speak more to it but they've just released their style guide online with all of the reusable components that they've built yeah I can definitely talk to the resourcing part 
even smaller companies or if there's a company that has just less uh, front-end resources it doesn't have to be dedicated people all it takes is uh, one or two passionate people who really care about this stuff uh, maybe working together with some of the product leads or the designers and kind of setting up a process on the side that builds into these style guides and reusable components for example at adroll we have we don't have that many people working on this full-time, but we have a meeting every two weeks that everybody in the company is welcome to join. And mostly it's all the front-end engineers, all the designers talking about uh, basically what they've built in the last two weeks. And that kind of builds that shared knowledge of uh, all the components we have without really having a dedicated team for it. And then I guess when you started deciding, hey, we're gonna have a style guide and we're gonna have this component library, how did you approach that? Was it like, people went off and created it or was it organically just growing? Well, it started growing organically because we uh, started building UIs in multiple repos. So there was definitely need to have some shared code and some way of sharing it. But uh, then to actually get it to a point where we have a style guide and it's formalized, we had to convince a few people. So, I mean, I, I think it's just a matter of finding the people who really care about consistency um, Cheers. <laughs> who care about consistency, who care about engineering efficiency, who care about infra infrastructure and just like telling them about all the pros and all the cons. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that's probably one of the harder things, like if we get into some of the cons, is getting alignment and getting convincing stakeholders that, hey, this is a good idea. We should go build this. I think that's always one of the hardest things to do is really get alignment from the team product managers, designers, engineers, everyone that's involved, it's really hard to get that alignment to say, this is something we should invest in. One of the hardest things too is, because um, I was at Adderall starting to build this, is in order to justify what you're doing, you need to prove that it's useful, but in order to prove that it's useful, you need to build it. So it's kind of like, it starts, it grows organically, but after sort of, you know, this kind of covert, hey, I'm building this thing over here type thing, which which is really interesting to, to see it grow. It's um, also really hard to test too, if you're working on stuff you can't test that it's reusable because it's not being reused everywhere yet. So it's, it's this really interesting dynamic when you start to work on reusable components without having sort of the alignment or the agreement from the very get-go. Yeah, I think you have to like know that it's just going to have to be iterative Like when you're just building it out. It, like So uh, Atlassian has a, um, a design system or guidelines that they've built out, and they spend a lot of time like defining what design is and what their product design should be, and then having an entirely dedicated team to build out um, something called Alice Kit, which is a, the React UI implementation of those patterns and the components that make it that up. And... There are, you know, we were, Bitbucket was one of the first consumers of some of these components to, to, to go out and, and be released to the public. And there was definitely iteration, like they had the component, we consumed it, we, we ran into like an issue here and there, we'd open up tickets, they would fix it, um, and then, you know, and continue on like that. But being the first product to use it, like you said, like, th there will be little, you know, issues, but you can't. You can't like go in a vacuum and build an entire style guide, an entire component system, and then release it. Like yeah. it almost has to be done like in small chunks. I've seen that people try and do that in companies, and it almost—I don't think I've ever actually seen it work. It never does because it's—it's it's too hard. You're no one's going to give you enough time to go create that. By the time you've created it, there's all these issues that come up because you haven't tested and iterated on it and actually see 
can we actually share these components? Does this actually make sense? And so, yeah, I think that's probably the best way is starting small, like create that one input and see if it works everywhere. And the worst thing is a shared component that nobody's using. Yeah. Like if it's just <laughs> then it's no longer shared. <laughs> if it's a dead component that like was meant to be shared, but nobody's using, that's just like a sad thing. I think you have to accept that though, because you can build something thinking people are going to use it and then realize that perhaps it's either too big to be a reusable component. It's just like too heavy and you can't get it to be <clears throat> consistent <laughs> across all of Cheers. your UIs. Yeah, actually at Evernote, we're kind of struggling to create our own style guide, like we started using Rex Storybook and kind of going with how small teams, I would say Evernote's still pretty small, but the way like, so someone actually just kind of championed it through and converted all of our existing components because it's, I think a lot of the struggle Evernote has had is like we, we try to get all the designers like, hey, let's make a consensus of what the style guide should be. And then like, it just kind of goes on for this very long conversation that just never happens. And I think like if you are trying to like get a style guide going, just like take what you have existing, get it into like a place that it's like easily viewable and accessible by designers. And then like when they start making changes to it, they can kind of see the impact of what those changes do. And they can start kind of thinking in that like style guide-esque thingy mode. <laughs> 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 Consistently. <laughs> I think now we're just doing it on purpose. <laughs> so what I'm hearing kind of from all of you who've built, worked in a lot of teams and built different reusable components is the only way to make it happen is you need a champion and you need someone to own it across the board. You can't just say, oh yeah, I want to make a reusable component. Everybody says, yeah, good job, Josh or Yuri. And then yeah. it just dies off, which I've seen happen. You kind of, you really have to own it and push it through the system and then make sure you keep it up to date. Would that be accurate? Yeah, if, yeah. It's, if it's everybody's problem, then it's nobody's problem. Uh, that's, that's what I've found. Like there has to be somebody who cares about it, who's driving it forward. Uh, from the top down. Uh, it, the whole process doesn't have to be top down, but there has to be somebody who cares about it. Yeah, I agree. I think if, if even at a larger company, it's tough to, I mean, I think every company in the world under invest in infrastructure, and this is, uh, this is kind of one of those things that fall under that umbrella. So I think you have to have somebody that's really passionate about it uh, at the top that's. I think you have to have like design be as valued as product at, at whatever place you are. Like if you don't have, if you don't have senior leadership that thinks that design is important, then they're not gonna give you the funding or like the, the team creation capability to like do the thing. I actually think that's pretty interesting because I kind of wanted to talk about um, how style guides and reusable components can improve the relationship between product and design because you're kind of giving... And engineering. And, I sorry, all, I meant, all by all product three, I yeah. meant engineering, yeah. You're giving people the tools to build things that are visually consistent. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> you're giving people the tools and you're there for reducing the friction that goes into every new project um, in order to like either build something from the ground up or to align it closer with the rest of the product and that kind of thing. So to your point, yeah, I think it's really important that you have someone that values design, but when you have two champions, probably some sort of a liaison between engineering and design, the rest of the organization doesn't necessarily need to care as much about design. I think they should, definitely, but you're reducing the friction and the amount of overhead that'll go into every project. And I think it improves the relationship over time because you get, you get less fighting, you get less headbutting, you get less of an engineer going, oh, this is a new project that looks totally different, I'm just gonna 
kind of do what you want me to do, but actually it's much easier for them to implement someone else's vision or to iterate on it if you give them the toolkits in order to do that. So I think it's great to give everyone the tools, but it's even better when internally it's improving the dynamics of your engineering team and design and product and VPs and you know whoever else you want to involve. It builds better relationships. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and better UIs, so yeah. why not? Better user experience, yeah. which is great. I've actually found um, the, the opposite of that. Sometimes I totally agree with everything you said, but um, I found the opposite of that sometimes is because at least it, at LinkedIn, there are, there are often times where design will come up with something that's not necessarily patternized and so it kind of puts you as the engineer kind of in the middle of, of this like centralized design system and, and because you're the one who has to implement it so like if you you know obviously in a code review if you're not using something that's already been patternized you're going to get questions on your on your pull request on why you're not using something that already exists and then you're like well the designer did wanted to go a different direction <laughs> and then and then now you're kind of like in this awkward position between the designer and the um, design systems team I, I think to me that goes on you as the engineer is why aren't you like bringing that to the designer and sharing that with them because i think at the end of the day and josh can correct me if i'm wrong but i think designers care about consistency and they, they, you know if you say this is not the same it definitely does but you just you, you lose friends that way <laughs> josh would you be mad if i was like this isn't consistent be honest and if not, you should come to LinkedIn because they get that. <laughs> I think the problem, too, is that when you start involving engineers in the reusable components and having a closer relationship with design, they obviously they start to kind of align with design way more closely. And you talk to another engineer, you're like, why isn't this consistent with what I wrote? It's just, it kind of, it, it's pretty interesting that, you know, everyone starts to feel responsible for the visual brand outside of design. But the, there's definitely that overhead that we've been talking about. And I've seen that there's, like, specifically, there's, like, overhead for the design process like you start have to start thinking like okay new feature is this going to be shared do multiple teams need this like is this do we just build it out and do shared components later or do we just build it out as a shared component now those are kind of the it's new questions that then you have if you have a style guide and then in the development process you just really want to make sure that nothing is a breaking change so when you're changing code that other people use you just want to make sure if it's versioning, NPM packages, testing, whatever you have, like there's just those additional layers to make sure that nothing breaks. Yeah, I think if you have a, a good system to almost like internal open source, right? Like mm -hmm. you, you allow people to do pull requests. So if that component doesn't work for a particular team, maybe they can do a PR into that component to um, enhance it. And it, it can be accepted if it makes sense for everything. And like, therefore, like, it may not always have to be a giant conversation. You can just sort of improve it over time through like right. everybody contributing to it, which I think is important. I think of style guides and pattern libraries, pattern libraries or design systems as being a, a little bit different uh, from one another. Like I, I tend to, uh, I think style guides are great because they give you the base level elements of that you need for everything, uh, whether it be typography or. Um, inputs or buttons or anything like that that everyone can use and there's there's really no going around that because you can't make a case that oh well this didn't work for my feature well it's just a text input of course it worked for your feature you just want it to look a different way so then that's a different argument but when you get to like a design system that's where I've seen it kind of break down is because design is very iterative so you can go prototype something go test it with users you've already built this component 
and especially if you have another team that is actually building this design system, you have to have constant feedback to them saying, well, this didn't test well, or uh, we didn't get the, the results that we wanted with this particular component, uh, we need to revise it. And if you're doing this every week or every two weeks, uh, that can really you know, create a lot of overhead and a lot of churn on a lot of stuff. And then you end up kind of, or in my experience, you end up compromising uh, on, on various things, and that could be at the expense of the user experience then. See, and I'd be, in some ways, I'd actually be okay, like I said, like if you change something, I mean, nobody wants to change something every week or every two weeks, but I think if you get that baseline of like that one component, even if it gets changed every week, if it's applied everywhere, then at least everywhere is getting updated all at once. Yes, there's that overhead, but that initial, like getting that baseline, I think it really helps save time. Yeah, and I think, I guess what I was speaking to more was like if you've got a let's say a typehead search or like a predictive search depending on the results coming in from that from whatever your use case is for that you may need a, a you know a larger list or a sectioned out list so that can vary you know so that can be, there can be different variants of that um, and as you're testing through that uh, I mean I guess you can get to a point where once it's released you can say okay now it's let's push this back up into the design system and so you may have three different versions of the predictive search results because there's three different use cases for it. Now but if you're to try and design that up ahead of time and say every app has to use this particular search result then that's where you might run into problems and then you may have one team saying well that's what we have to use and that's what you just end up implementing uh, instead of having those conversations and trying to push that roll that back up to the design system. Yeah, you don't want to like sacrifice UX just because it's the system, it's the component right. for the system. You're like, but it maybe isn't the best. That's why I've always liked style guides. It's, it's, it's a, a guide. guide. It's, yeah. it's, it's not the rules. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and do you feel like, I think as a designer and even as engineers, do you feel something like a pattern library style guide? reusable components, any, whatever it is, do you feel constrained? I think that can be a con as well that I've heard lots of arguments against the pattern libraries is because you feel like it's already been done, I feel constrained, I'm not recreating anything, I'm just reusing something. So I think that's a really good indicator of a experienced product designer versus maybe someone who's a little less experienced is a lot of times you kind of set that aside and you, it's actually kind of great to work with constraints a lot because then you're you really have to you know, validate that you need to change this particular thing for your use case. And that constraint being there you know, may not have forced you into that direction of maybe finding a new pattern that you have to introduce, or at least questioning it at first and then finding that, no, I don't actually have to, have to change this because it's been well thought out. It works you know, perfectly for my use case. But it's also, I mean, I've seen that where, you know, People's egos get in the way, and they'll be like, well, I want it to look this way, and I want my, my stamp on this. That's where I think the, the conflicts kind of arise, and, and I don't know, in my experience. Engineers do it all the time. We recreate things all the time. It's like, I can write this code better, and so I can see that even happening. I think there has to be, like with any system, there has to be some room for experimentation. Like, it has to be, it's like, you know, like evolution. Like, there's a kind of a, the normal path where things kind of evolve iteratively, but sometimes there's like a crazy mutation that might be better for everybody. 
So you, you want to allow that sometimes. There might be a new product that a team starts building and it might be okay for them to totally take their uh, own way with it. And, and then as an experiment to see if that kind of UI works or if those features work. And if they end up working or other teams start asking for the same things, then you can kind of go back and add them into the library. Yeah, as an example for Bitbucket, we've got a like our own little separated out component library that isn't really meant to be shared with the entire product suite, but it is sort of this place where we can define a shared UI component with the idea that maybe like it's only useful for Bitbucket right now, but maybe it eventually might be useful for another product within Atlassian, and therefore it at that point maybe we take it out of our own little self-maintained library and we and we promote it up into Atlas Kit and we, we make it shareable for the world and kind of have like this little sandbox where we set it up so it could be shareable so that you, you at least do some pre-work to make sure that you're, you're coding it in the right way so that it's like the shareable thing. And we, we've talked like everybody's kind of touched on it here and there but one of the main cons of reusable components is you have to have good testing in place because if you change a base component and that propagates out, yeah, that's cool. It fixes it for everybody, but also it's double-edged sword. It could break things for everybody. Tons of regressions. Exactly. And it's very, very subtle and I've run into it before and it's just, you might not even notice it till months later. And you're like, this thing used to work and it doesn't work and you have to backtrack, backtrack, backtrack and you find out someone changed the base component on you and we didn't have testing in place to cover that. And that's... This like that's more the real world of what actually happens when you try to implement. It's yeah, it's really hard. We do all of our components. Each one of them is an npm package internally, and we we do like semantic versioning. So we try to make it clear what's a breaking change and what's not. We can do pre-releases stuff like that, just like in open source. But even with that, it's hard. Like that's like the first thing I look at with every PR against our components is like, what does the developer think the version is? Did the public API change? And if it did, like, is this marked as a breaking version? And even then, if it's a breaking version, then that's going to be a manual upgrade for every application that's using the component. So even with versioning, then you get into the issue of having multiple versions out there. How do you communicate that to the different teams? Is it just sort of, you know, broad email or are most people actually looking at the pull request? Or is this just you have to be very proactive and you really have to keep on top of how the library is evolving? Well, I would say we have a Slack channel where we can just post like the most critical updates and that's where all the UI engineers are. And then we have that the meeting every two weeks. That's kind of like the bigger updates kind of thing. So usually what happens is that there's a change, a new feature to a component and we add it to the code base, but it's disabled by default. So it doesn't break anything for anybody. And then we start communicating about like, okay, let's roll this out. Let's enable it everywhere. And so it, it's definitely like a communications thing. It's, it's a coordination heavy thing. Yeah, same for the, so that whenever AliceKit um, updates one of their main components, there's a change log and it talks about like what was break, breaking change and you don't have to consume it right away, obviously, like you, you do when you, when you need it. But there's also just that human component. Like we have a meeting every, every week with the, the um, larger design team that's done the design system as well as a member from the Alice Kit team. So then we talk through like, this is, you know, this this change is here, you guys are going to have to consume it. Oh, hey, we ran into these issues. Like we have that like a conversation. So it's not just like this sort of 
oh, watch, just watch the change log. That's all you need to do. You know, you actually like talk, talk to people, human, human interaction. Which is so funny because on our previous episode, we were talking with Laurie Voss uh, from NPM and he was like, NPM is trying to make it so that you can avoid those human interactions and just follow the NPM package updates and everything. But I think it is really, really tough to just do that and just follow a change log. You need those discussions in person. Yeah, because humans are imperfect, right? And the change log is you as it, you have to make sure that all the changes are documented in the change log. And maybe you miss something, and you know people make mistakes. So I think it's so important to, to talk. And then you get into all kinds of very hard to catch stuff, like changing the base styles, and then a component having some kind of custom style that conflicts with it. It gets like there's all kinds of stuff that's hard to catch between like multiple components updating at the same time. So we've talked about some of the pros and cons of why we'd want to have a style guide, component library, whatever we want to call it. What are some tools, frameworks, libraries that can help create these style guides? Are there some that you've used or some that you've seen out there open source that are really good that people could start using? So like React and Angular in general kind of make reusable components easier because the idea behind it at its core are components, so that makes it pretty easy. React yeah. kind of drives the path. There's this great talk online called React Plus X. <laughs> Wait, that sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, so Mars gave a talk at front and J uh, forward JS, and you can look it up <laughs> on YouTube. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's exactly about this: how great React is for reusable components. Well, I almost I don't know if exactly how I say it in the talk, but I would go so far as to say that React as a framework has helped UI engineers think about things in terms of components, which was a really big shift and kind of why we've evolved from style guides to being guides and, and patterns and everything and actually moved into like tools that engineers can use. So there you can have designers working on, you know, different visual language, but we can also make it like, you know, reusable components are called reusable for a reason. And I think it's just you evolve past just having guides, you have actual things that people can use. And I think React has done a really great job of championing that concept. Yeah, I, I mentioned it earlier, but for, for React, we use a thing called React Storybook. It's just like this kind of playground for, like you could like literally just take the component you made in React and just shove it into that playground. And it just makes it really easy for you to add it to the nav and then you just click it and then it renders. And it's actually been like pretty useful for us because if it doesn't render there, like normally it's like oh wow there's a lot of missing things this component needed it's not as reusable or consistent <laughs> as we thought so it's like living documentation yeah it is literally like living documentation and it's been like super useful it's like helped a lot with like QAing things and stuff yeah there's a lot of great tools like that like i think there's yeah. there's a react style guide generator which yeah, yeah, same exactly. thing it takes the component i don't know if that's the same tool but I, it's like pre, it's like pretty similar because i've seen a couple of them yeah and it just creates your own interactive library from all exactly. the components yeah. which is great yeah storybook's been awesome that's like alice kit uses a lot of that uh, uses storybook to show you the various state of a particular component. Like uh, if you have a navigation component, here's when the, the drawer is open for search, here's when it's not, here's when there's many items in the navigation versus not many items in the navigation. So they give you all these examples to, to click through and it's just to see the implementation examples and details. And then also you can like drill into the code and be like, how do they get their component yeah, yeah, to actually yeah. behave like that? And mm -hmm. so you can see, it's good for engineers to see like the example of how it was built too. 
Yeah, that was actually like something I was going to bring up earlier. Like another huge benefit for style guides is like onboarding. Like I found that it's like someone can just go there and they see how that component's used, and it's just, or even like a designer, they just go there, go. To These the, are all our different styles, and yeah, this is what exactly. it looks like. It's just like a really like oh, that's how you use it. Copy, don't copy Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think one that always comes to mind that I was really impressed by is called Pattern Lab. Brad Frost and Dave Olson had created that. And it breaks everything down into like how to create components into, they call them molecules, organisms, and atoms. And they break how this component is actually created. I think it's really, really interesting. And Brad Frost actually even has a book called Atomic Design that covers a lot of that. And I think those are really great resources. Pattern Lab actually helps you create your own. So very cool. Yeah, I've been using Brad Frost's Atomic Design for a couple of years now. And it's been hugely beneficial just because you can break things down to like the atomic level and then you're building them like you've got some atoms into a molecule and then a few molecules into a organism and then you can start putting those into templates. And so it's really great to be able to break those down and kind of see how everything fits together. And it really helps just with even just like semantic naming and, and things like that. So you kind of know where, where things are, like buttons are gonna be in the atoms. Yeah. Uh, Cause it's a one thing. It makes a lot of sense once you break it down like that. I, I really like that they use that analogy because it works really well. Mm -hmm. yeah. And actually, we had Brad Frost on site at Netflix. It was a couple years ago, but he had given a presentation on that. And yeah, I, I thought it was explained really, really well. And that made me, it made a lot of sense to me at that point. Distribution is another, I think, like, it's just something as simple as NPM um, has really helped. Like, I remember, I'm sure we all remember back in the days of jQuery, where you had to, like, download the jQuery plugin and then, like, but you know it's so easy not only to to consume components but also to to publish them to and and easily get people to see it you know i think npm has done some, like stuff that has always existed i guess with node but now it's finally uh, easy to do on the front end yeah and it's it's like good to realize why it's so useful like versioning is really good yeah. but also like compared to the jquery times when you might have had jquery in your repo like you committed the libraries in your yeah. repo yeah. which <laughs> eventually always leads to somebody modifying the third-party library and that's when you're like that's like that's the end of the like line because you don't you don't get to upgrade the thing anymore because now it has local updates so npm just it's such a nice abstraction for okay this is the stuff you're not supposed to touch and this is the code that's local to the repo. And you can have different versions too, right. which like jQuery, like, I don't know, I remember the days when I would go into the code base and there'd be like three links to jQuery, but it was all different versions because some uh, library or uh, framework needed that, like you were using a carousel that needed jQuery 1.7 and some other tool on your site, like a navigation needed 1.5 and so they're calling all these different libraries and it's just crazy which npm solves a lot of that which is great yeah i mean but for all of like you know a lot of us complain about jquery but it did make a lot of things really easy at the very beginning and actually if you think if you think about it they weren't called reusable components but jquery widgets are essentially the same thing and totally without i mean this is way more ubiquitous than it was before but jquery widgets were developed and they were you know like browser like cross browser compatible they would work with different versions and, and everything like that and it's really interesting to see that they got it right back then and now we're all kind of starting to realize the same thing in different companies you know over and over again
So are these practices done at most companies? Like I know we've talked about AdRoll now doing that, Atlassian's been doing that. Is this like creating component library style guides? Is this something that we are seeing more and more? Is it something that companies should be doing? Yeah, I definitely think so. Like to, so when I said that Evernote started doing it, it was actually the growth team, um, Kevin Fahey. They do a lot of the experiments that Evernote runs and he like started using Storybook as a way to say, when we wanted to do like visual A-B tests, it was like a really good platform to be like, hey, here's a component and I can see this variant and this variant and made it very easy for like QA or someone to just kind of see what experiment was running and then what the different variations are. I think it's definitely something we're trying to continue doing, but naturally, like I think large part of our discussion is like finding resources and time to actually do it is somewhat difficult. Yeah, it's interesting because most companies will work on their products for their end users, but when you start working on a reusable component library, you have to carve out some of your resources to build products for your company, if that makes sense. Like the clients for those particular engineers are no longer your end clients, you know, it's, it's internal. You have really developing for developers, which is, you know, a lot of companies work, you know, they provide software solutions like NPM is for other developers, but when you really think about building it internally, you really have to start thinking about the other people you're working with. Yeah, I, I, I think there is a point, like going back to the, uh, to Ryan's point about smaller companies, I think, like the absolutely the smaller startups like should not do this uh, because it's way too much overhead on top of iterating fast. So I, I, the breaking point is either like having UIs in multiple repos. That's kind of what's like, then you start need to start thinking about consistency. Cheers. Um, cheers. cheers. <laughs> but also like if the company gets big enough, even if you're in the same code base, but if you have UI engineers or designers who don't talk to each other every day, who are not sitting at the same table physically, then it kind of gets to a point where you need to have that source of truth somewhere else. Yeah, I, th I think so. One of the, I, I believe one of the reasons that LinkedIn invests so much money in, in a, or so much resources into a design system is because we heard from users and it wasn't that long ago. It was maybe like four, three, I don't know, four or five years ago, probably that they heard from users that there's, you know, these different products, different teams, different repos, but different products at LinkedIn that feel very different. Like, like we had users say, like we're using a, we're using a product that is a LinkedIn product, but it doesn't feel like LinkedIn. So that's a really easy way. I think if, if when you get to that point to justify the expense of, of making things consistent. Cheers. 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 So I actually work on the a lot of internal products and it's for our studio uh, for all the Netflix originals and so we have quite a few apps that our employees use to get like a lot of their workflows done and I was I'm new to the team and I was I was really glad to see that we had a design system started in both sketch and then also uh, kind of like a code base or like a CS or a SAS repo essentially we didn't have any react components or anything built yet but to see to be able to get that feedback immediately from all the various stakeholders, because some of the stakeholders will jump from, you know, one application to two or more, and if you don't have that consistency there, they don't know if they're in our internal tools or not, or having a, a big visual jump may be jarring to them and kind of confusing. So being able to start from scratch, I guess, and trying to, you know, publish that to like every single application. Uh, we're seeing some of those those pains on like we don't have enough time 
we're you know building apps really fast and it's to try and take some of that some of the resources away from that and trying to build this visual system that everyone can use and, and engineers can just kind of plug and play it's kind of a hard sell because it's internal tools but I think it's just as important if it was public facing. Yeah, we had this exact same thing. And so like all of our inter- internal tools for a long time and still took sense today, the legacy ones are Twitter bootstrap, you know, so cause it was just the easiest. And a lot of the internal tools were built by backend engineers and they just needed a quick front end. So like, you know, bootstrap was just the easiest solution. But I, I, I think we found, and I totally agree with that, it's it's important, I think, to invest in in making sure there's still that same design system for your internal tools because then it's it's it just makes it easier. Like the same reasons that that it's important for your consumer facing product to be uh, consistent for all users. It's just as important, if not more important, for productivity for all of your internal tools. You still have the customers yeah. that are using your yeah. product. It doesn't if matter. Not, if not like even heavier customers. Exactly, like, you know, and you're you're investing in your own team or whoever like is using this in your company. And if it's going to cost you more time to figure out a bad UX, well, that kind of sucks. So if you can make it better and really consistent across the board, that's good. Cheers. 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 We've missed a couple too. (laughs) What are some good examples of style guides that you've seen in the wild? I'd love to hear some examples that you guys have found really useful. So I I think, like, I know everyone hates it, but like, I think Bootstrap is a good way for people to get started. Like it, it gives all the advantages that we talked about to people that don't want to necessarily worry about figuring all that stuff out and is consistency good UX like you know it gets a bad rap just because it's used it's because it is so popular right and everything looks the same but but it's it's also like if you get the less or the SaaS version of bootstrap it's fairly customizable like yeah. our base styles are actually based on bootstrap and we just we just replace some of the variables we redefine some of the classes to a point where it doesn't look like bootstrap anymore but it's still a useful base uh, for the styles and for the markup, for like accessibility, for stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Well, also Bootstrap has a React Bootstrap. Well, there's an NPM package called React Bootstrap, which is a which is a React reusable components library for Bootstrap. So if you know you go to you go to the base styles for Bootstrap and you start customizing your theme, it's going to apply to all of your Bootstrap components. And I think that for small companies who are looking to get off the ground really quickly, public reusable component libraries or style guides of any kind really are useful to start somewhere especially because when you have a small company you don't necessarily have front-end engineers you have someone who's trying to do all jobs all at once and you really need the tools to to get off the ground running especially in a startup too it's like anyone just ship it get it out there i think one of the first style guides or interactive style guides i think that's a better way to put it that I ever saw that I really liked and I feel like they've kept it consistent is Starbucks. I, I thought that was one of the first ones I'd ever seen that was really? done really well. They were really yeah. innovative. They were like one of the yeah. first ones yeah. to publish. <laughs> they really were. And it was impressive because you could go through and you could see how their modal windows open and close and like uh, how their inputs worked. I always found that one to be one of the first ones I'd ever seen. And I always think of it as still consistently pretty good. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> also, everyone's on their laptops now Googling Starbucks style guide. <laughs> I just found uh, styleguides.io. Yeah, that's a great, it has so many examples. You kind of blew Augustus's pick for later, but I'm sorry. Uh, no, it's okay. St- still very good because it has a lot of really good examples on there. I think also AdRoll just published a style guide what? with some of their reusable components. Yuri's been working on that one. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Can I just ask since I have a lot of style guide experts here. What's the difference between a style guide and a brand guideline? 
That's a good question. Most companies have brand guidelines. Josh touched on it a little bit of talking about the like fonts, like typography and everything, but Josh can probably answer it better than I can. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's um, kind of your core. It's typically consumer facing. uh, And so it's kind of like your core personality, visual personality. Uh, And so a lot of it too is how to use the logo type and you know how to put clear space around it how much padding does it need do this with it don't do that with it don't squish it things like that and then here's our color palette our our typography kind of just setting some of that that base uh, information and I, I think a lot of times too it's usually in a marketing setting versus a, a product setting and so it's usually not nearly as robust and a lot of times it's a PDF. <laughs> it's just built by different people. Like yeah. usually marketing is a different department from engineering UX. Uh, so I, I, I would assume in most big companies. Yeah, it's not interactive. Like I think of like at Netflix, like we have, we definitely have a brand guide and it's even for like partners, like we'll have TV manufacturers that ship with Netflix built in or on the remote, there's a button and they have to follow how like exactly what Josh said, how does that logo look? What's the color of the logo? Uh, What's the padding? What's the margin? All those types of things need to be done appropriately to the brand and you have to follow those guidelines if you're gonna use their logo. So I think to me that's a brand guideline versus like a style guide to me is a little more interactive and it's kind of what we're talking about of like reusable components and something that we can use internally to make sure that we're keeping things consistent. Cheers. I've generally seen uh, style guides will sit in early days before, you know, kind of even the idea of componentizing things, they would sit on top of your CSS. So it would be like built in, it would be a part of your application and it would just be like, here's just a big giant page that has, uh, sits on top of your actual CSS and shows you what an icon or input or a paragraph or whatever looks like, but it was, but it's rendering it because based on your actual CSS that you use, you also use for your, your product. So I think that's kind of a big difference from like the PDF brand guidelines versus like style guide. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So as we wrap up today's episode, we like to share pics of things that we've found interesting to share. And let's go around the table and share pics for today's episode. Derek, let's start it off with you. What do you have? Sure. I have two completely unrelated to style guys. But ironically, I think both of them have very well designed products. So we'll just go with that. My first pick is Instacart. So I've used Instacart for, I think, since they started. And I actually recently listened to uh, another podcast, How I Built This, which I mentioned last week. I have been into since Ryan has suggested it. It's a good episode now. Yeah, they did an episode on Instacart. And, uh, but anyway, just, just their, I think their product is, is amazing. And I think their idea is great. I love not having to go to the grocery store. A lot of times people say it's because I'm lazy, which I am. So that's fine. I'm okay with that. You like convenience. (laughs) And my second pick is Blue Apron. This is something else I've been doing for a while. It's all food related. (laughs) But no, my wife and I do Blue Apron um, probably twice a month now. We just love it because it's just, fun to to the experience of cooking whatever dish is fun and all the recipes are are really really good so probably more geared towards people that there's like two at least two people in the household because you know one person is kind of you know it's hard to i guess you can cook one dish and then save you know for leftovers but but anyway if you haven't tried it i mean it is good my problem with it is i'm lazy and it 
takes a lot of work. It, it's like a good 40 minutes to an hour to cook well, whatever so I it I is. I've got to balance out my Instacart shopping. Fair menu. enough. <laughs> I, I like your attitude there, Derek. It is delicious food, though, so that's good. You could also, like, try caviar and just have your food all prepared already and delivered to you. I like that <laughs> idea. levels of cooking yeah. involved here. Augustus, what do you have? Salga.io was one, but um, Jem mentioned it. So so I don't worry, I have a backup. Don't worry. Uh, so one is QuickDraw. I think we actually mentioned it at another podcast. It was like basically Google's thing where um, you, it gives you a word and you draw something and it tries to guess it. They actually published the data set for it and you can actually go to a bunch of these drawings and see 10,000 different ways someone drew like a fire truck or like an anchor. And actually even the website is just made really incredibly, it's like it renders it all in a giant canvas and shows every single drawing that everyone drew. Yeah, and then I guess going with Google, um, Google I.O. was last week and I heavily recommend just checking out the videos. There's a lot of good things that came out like Android O this new language, or not new language, but it's gonna be supported by Android. Kotlin? It was made by, yeah, Kafka, made by IntelliJ, so, yeah. And the lens, that's cool. I'm Ooh, excited. The I'm lens is very cool. I'm gonna use lens finally, that's cool. Mars, what do you have? So, my first pick is a.singlediv.com, which is um, this website where a, one person uses a literally a single div and has all these crazy drawings trying to, I guess, you know, illustrate, like literally illustrate the power of CSS. And my second one would probably be Detour, which is an audio walking tour app in different cities in the US, which was developed by, or actually the developers of Detour also did the SF MoMA audio walking tour. So it's supposed to be really interesting and, and take you to sort of hidden corners of the city. So I haven't tried it out yet, but I've heard really good things from some people. So I'm looking forward to aimlessly getting lost in San Francisco. That's really cool. Yuri, what do you have for us? Uh, so first up, I'm gonna do a shameless plug. We did publish our style guide just this week. It's at ux.adroll.com and you can see all of our base styles in action. You can see all of our React components in action. And there's even a section for voice and tone from our copywriters. So check it out. Let me know if you have any comments, if you find any bugs. Should people reach out to you directly? Sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> The other pick that I have is a podcast called Reasonably Sound. It's very interesting. I'm kind of a music nerd, and so that kind of leads into this podcast. They cover interesting phenomena in audio and, and sound. One example would be they had an episode on the Inception sound, the Brahm, and kind of the origins of the sound and how it, they take it apart like acoustically and stuff. and. It's, it's pretty interesting. So those would be my picks. Jem, what do you have? My first pick is a rare treat because this pick is probably older than some of the people listening to the podcast. Uh, I thought it was going to be a shower thought. No, I had a shower thought, but I decided to <laughs> do away with that for now. The first pick is Why Does Chicken Cross the Road? But it's a text link that probably exists on some BBS like long, long time ago. But it's, it's a lot of famous people's solutions to... Why did Chicken Cross the Road? I find it fascinating because I like a bit of philosophy here and there, and it's it's a good read. If you're ever bored, just read through it. Uh, my second pick is a bit nerdier, but still just as cool. ES6 proxies and reflection. Proxies are awesome, and the reflection API is also cool in JavaScript, and I feel like we haven't used it yet, even though it's been around for two years. So Mozilla has Mozilla Hacks, which is a blog about just random hacks they do. A lot of smart people there. It's worth reading. I think everybody should know a bit more about proxies so we can start building some software that uses things like that. 
Josh, what do you have for us? My first one is uh, a little travel related. I just came across it. I haven't used it yet, but it looks really promising. It's called, I believe it's pronounced Inspire Rock. I-N-S-P-I-R-O-C-K dot com. Uh, and it's basically you just type in your destination, your dates, and then it asks you what kind of activities you want. So you can say, I want some popular or hidden gems, fast paced, medium or slow and easy, and enter this criteria and then it gives you a plan uh, and it'll generate an itinerary for you. And then you can adjust it and save it. And then of course they want you to pay for the hotels and the flights and everything through them. But it looks promising. I think I might try it for my next, <laughs> my, my, next uh, my next trip. And then I have two that are very re or pretty related, but the uh, Envision, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Sketch app. So there's two things. One, they just released a prototype portion of it. So now you can do all the uh, like prototyping within Sketch, and then it's you know uploaded to Envision, and then you can do clickable prototypes between all your different screens. And something somewhat related would be uh, Airbnb's. Uh, React Sketch app, and I haven't used that yet, but I do know someone on my team who's pretty excited about it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Definitely, I've looked at it a little bit, and I'm I'm pretty impressed by the React and uh, Sketch integration. That's pretty mm -hmm. cool. Stacy, what do you have? All right, so two picks. Uh, first pick is I talked about it a decent amount during this episode, so I feel like it should be my pick, and that is uh, Atlas Kit. Um, it's open sourced, um, so it's public. Uh, I think it's kind of nice that. A company that created something, a design system as well as a UI implementation component shared library is like open sourcing it and sharing it with everybody. So it's cool that you could like you if you're considering building something like this out, you could dig into this code and see like how how um, Atlassian uh, chose to do it. So that's atlaskit.atlassian.com, and there's links there to like not only the the code implementation but then also like the philosophy and design guidelines and such. So that's my first pick, and then my second pick is it's been very sunny here recently, and I think this song is a very like summery happy times kind of song and it's uh by an artist called geotic and it's called actually smiling is the name of the the track it's another ghostly international artist um, and i like them a lot as you might string together through my recommendations right on you usually do have some good music recommendations <laughs> All right, so for my picks, I have two. One is totally a shameless dad pick. As Jem had mentioned in a couple episodes ago, I recently had a, my first child, so I needed a diaper bag, which is something I never <laughs> thought I would need. But of course, I need the nerdiest one that I can find. And so there is the XLR8 Connect diaper bag. And what that is, it's a backpack and it has a charger for your phone built in. It has a light to search inside the bag. It has a Bluetooth speaker built in. And then it has a bunch of cool shit for like changing your baby's diapers. It has a bunch of com compartments for like uh, like the milk and everything to like put that in there so that it kept cold. It's, it's a pretty cool bag. I totally highly recommend it to any other parent that needs a diaper bag. <laughs> <laughs> Then my second pick is a Amazon TV show, which I recently watched. They have three seasons. It's called Bosch. It's a cop show. Highly recommend checking that one out. Before we end the episode, I want to thank Yuri and Josh for joining us and being guests on the podcast. It was a pleasure having both of you. Uh, where can people get in touch with you? Josh, you want to start? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. It's just at Joshua London. Yuri. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at J-T-U-U-L-O-S. 
Great. Thank you both again for joining us. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at FrontendHH. And don't forget to ask us questions uh, for our AMA episode at frontendhappyhour.com slash AMA. Any last words? Consistency. Consistency. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.